Hello and welcome. My name is Chris Rawl and it is Tuesday, August 24th. On today's show, how do you find patience in a world that is increasingly about urgency? Before we get there, I want to give you one reason why gambling should be legal everywhere on planet Earth. Ladies and gentlemen, I come before you today a happy and fulfilled man. For many, many moons, I've been betting on Tony Finau outright to win a golf tournament. Now, this has been a barren wasteland since the 2016 Puerto Rican Open, the last time Tony had won an event, an event that I did not bet on. In that span, I bet on him to win or to get in the top 10 and the top 20 many times. Very lucrative bets. Tony, he was putting money into my pocket, which I tip my cap to him and thank him for greatly. However, on the outright market, again, one that I dabbled in for many, many, many moons, uh, Tony had not come through for one reason or another. Many times not his fault. Yesterday, everything coalesced into that one shining moment that you always want in gambling. For Tony, that meant he wins the Northern Trust in a playoff over Cam Smith. For me, that means I win an outright bet on Tony Finau at 66-1 to that I gave out last week on this show and then proceeded to run naked through the streets. Everybody made fun of my body. I don't care. I'm happy. I'm fulfilled. I have money. I don't know what to do with it. I'm probably going to go down to Texaco and buy a hot dog and a soda. And we have our reason why gambling should be legal everywhere because it offers true happiness. And now, sports with Chris Rawl. Yesterday's show was all about the process of improvement and the ways that I've tried that the ways that I have tried to implement that within my own life uh, in many ways, but most specifically when it comes to the world of amateur golf. Just this process of constant self-assessment and this identification of truth and what that actually is within my own life, and then how that comes together and is accentuated by belief in yourself. Today's show is going to be a branch off of that same tree because it's about patience and trying to find that in a world that is increasingly about urgency. I think all of these themes are kind of threaded together. So think about yesterday's show is kind of a part one and today's as a part two because I think they work really well in unison together. So we come into the world of sports and I'll make a quick note just in general. Uh, I think the world in general, it's becoming more urgent by the day. I don't think I'm breaking news there. And I think the majority of people would agree with that statement. I think within the world of sports, when we narrow it down, it has also undergone that same kind of transition uh, where in the past, people, whether they were fans, whether they were uh, power brokers within organization, with whether they were athletes, uh, they had a lot higher capacity for patience and how that related to the process of improvement and trying to build out a championship contender. And in present day, that window has shrunk. And I think the more that... Uh, we go along within any professional sports league or any collegiate sports league, you feel that crunch. You feel that battle between patience and urgency. And you start to try and fight a war between those two things and determine what's best for you in that specific moment. When I talk about sports, I'm continually astounded by this push and pull between patience and urgency when it comes to a lot of areas. Um, how quick we are in general to jump to conclusions on players that are young and have definitely not finished growing or improving, or maybe haven't been put in the best position to succeed in their careers, or how quick 
we are in general, whether fans, media, or even people within organizations, how quick we are to kind of write off and eliminate teams as perceived title contenders because they lost for a couple years or even just lost for one individual year. Um, on the one hand, I get it. Again, I understand that now more than ever, uh, the process of building a championship contender in sports, the window has shrunk uh, as small as it's ever been. And that side of urgency, it's never been more prevalent. I get that part. On the other hand, patience always has to be a part of the equation. And so it, it kind of becomes the job of every person within an organization and it becomes this emotional burden of a fan to go, okay, when is the right time for patience? When is the right time for urgency? And how do those two things work together to create the best possible thing? I want to read something from Ben Solak of The Ringer to kind of illustrate this patience versus urgency uh, war specific to the NFL. From 2010 to 2018, 27 quarterbacks were selected in the first round. 16 of them had a losing record through their first three seasons, and nine of the 16 GMs who had selected them were fired after just two years. Some don't even get that long. End quote. So you see a picture there in an area that is of great interest to me. Rookie quarterbacks, I love talking about them. I've done that multiple times on this show. And I've also talked about patience and urgency and how it relates to that specific process. On the one hand, an organization brings in a rookie quarterback and they go, I know this will take time, A, because they're a rookie and they need to learn on the job, B, because it takes time for us as an organization to put a, uh, an offense and a play caller and a defense and a coaching staff around them that will accentuate their abilities. But also, the problem is if we don't have success pretty quickly, the GM's going to be fired and the coach is going to be fired and we're going to boot the quarterback out the door. The window is very small for the sweet spot between patience and urgency. It kind of acts as both a blessing and a curse. Um, when we talk about player development, on the one hand, um, the rate of improvement of each person is so, so, so different that it's kind of impossible to hold everybody to the same standard. That's part of the, the problem, and that's part of why it is so hard to actually evaluate players when they come out in the draft because you can always find rookie quarterbacks in the past and say well yeah can't everybody just be like Justin Herbert was last year because he was awesome and in actuality that's kind of an unrealistic expectation most rookie quarterbacks when they come to the league and play immediately it's going to be a lot of growing pains we saw that with some of the greatest quarterbacks of all time Peyton Manning comes to mind immediately for a guy who came to the league and really struggled his first year before piecing it together in year two. And in, in a different sport, in the NBA, you stick with the draft and you go, okay, uh, there's a bunch of 18 to 23-year-olds coming out every year in the draft, and each team is trying to understand and compare these players who are at vastly different stages of their own improvement and development arcs, and also understand how they would work within our specific situation and then also factor in a wide variety of factors to determine who the best draft pick should be. That's why every year in every draft, regardless of sport, you just see whiff after whiff after whiff. And you can go back five years ago and look at every single draft and go, how did everybody pass on this person? And why is this person taken in the top 10? It's just part of this attempt to find a balance between patience and urgency. 
That applies to a player individually when they're trying to develop. You look at a player like Giannis, who just won finals MVP, uh, who's won two regular season MVPs. He comes in the league looking like, well, not looking like, he actually is a child coming into the league. He's not done growing physically at the time, which how would you ever even know that? And they're showing the before and after pictures of him when he comes into the league and him when he's winning the NBA Finals, and it looks like two separate people, not just a dude who's separated by a decade or so. Uh, It's really hard to understand how a player is going to grow, period, Uh, much less how they're going to fit within your own team and scheme and all that kind of stuff. Um, Even when that person gets into the league, it's really hard to make sense of who has room to improve, period. Um, Who doesn't? Who has maxed out? Sometimes a a lot of knocks on the 23-year-olds coming out is they're probably done improving because they're five years older than these 18-year-olds. And so if we're looking for people who have room to grow when it comes to skills and physical ability, they seem more limited as this like shining beacon of potential. And a lot of teams will weed out prospects in that manner. And that's not always the correct way of doing it, but sometimes that's just how it works. Uh, It's truly one of the toughest parts of team building. It's evaluation and, and throwing that into the mix of patience and urgency and trying to understand when you evaluate talent, what are our expectations for this player uh, within our system? Is it a Giannis style player where that improvement arc is years and years and years and years and years? Is it Rudy Gobert on the jazz? Same kind of thing, years and years and years. Or is the expectation different when you're putting somebody in and you're going, okay, uh, you're a rookie quarterback, Zach Wilson. Uh, we're bringing you in onto the Jets and we need you to be good really, really quickly and you're going to be a starter from day one. Again, one of the toughest parts of team building. When you stick within the sport of the NBA, and I think about patience kind of as a both blessing and curse depending on how you utilize it. Um, I think about Devin Booker who played against Giannis in the NBA Finals and he is a really good example of Patience as a blessing because three years prior, the Suns, they're the worst team in the Western Conference. I believe they're 19 and 63. And there's a lot of hot takes about Devin Booker as a player and whether or not he's just a high volume scorer on a terrible team. And that is what he is always going to be. Pretty strange in the moment and even more so in retrospect, because when you look at a dude who's in his early 20s and putting up mid 20s points per game, You go, there's probably something there if we can surround him with better talent, which is what Phoenix ended up doing. They showed that patience and they said, no, we're sticking with this guy. We're not going to trade him. We're not going to shop him. Uh, We're going to keep him and build around him and grab DeAndre Ayton and Chris Paul and Mikkel Bridges and Jay Crowder and a lot of other players. And now both Devin Booker and the Phoenix Suns are being celebrated for their run to the finals and also for this understanding of when is the correct time to utilize patience as, a, as an approach and when is the correct time to cut ties with a player. I look at Donovan Mitchell within my own state, and it's kind of a similar but different story when it comes to the utilization of patience within an organization. Now, the Jazz never had to show patience in a certain way with Mitchell because he exploded onto the scene immediately. Relative unknown coming out of Louisville, And he's drafted uh, in the late lottery. And they're looking to fill a void left by Gordon Hayward. And nobody really expects Mitchell to come in and immediately be the best scorer on the team. And that's what he does. So now it becomes a different equation in the patience versus urgency uh, equation. 
where the Jazz are looking at Mitchell and saying, okay, how much room do you have to grow as an offensive player and especially as a scorer? Every single year of his career through four years, you've seen noticeable steps upward, and especially within the playoffs when that is the most important of skills. And they're also looking at him and saying, okay, I think you still have room to grow, which is awesome, especially in the playoffs, but also how much better of a defender can you be? Because up until this point, he has been a well below average defender. And part of the Jazz playoff loss last year, the Clippers, it surrounded that idea. Not necessarily specific to Mitchell, but just specific to the Jazz team as a whole. And outside of Rudy Gobert, how many defenders on this team do you actually think can perform under the the pressure of the playoffs? Uh, This dance, this dance between showing patience and finding urgency, that's what will ultimately decide the fate of the Utah Jazz. Um, And the Jazz are an interesting example of just always trying to find a balance between these two uh, opposing concepts, patience and urgency, because another person comes to mind as kind of a cautionary tale within how long you should show patience to a player. It's Dante Exum, um, who Jazz fans are probably hearing and going, oh no, I didn't want to talk about him today. Sorry, we have to. Uh, Because... You have too much patience for a player and you don't understand the correct time to cut ties with them. And the value of that player can kind of dry up. Uh, if you remember, Dante Exum was picked over or fifth overall by the Jazz in the 2014 draft. And for the next six seasons, there are splashes of promise everywhere, but also injuries galore. I always kind of compared Exum to Bambi because there would be times where he would seem so athletic and graceful and long, and just his physical tools jumped off the page. And yet then there would be other times where he it seemed like he just found himself plopped into that body and he didn't know what to do and he couldn't dribble. And it was a very frustrating experience to watch him and go, well, can't you just piece this together? Uh, by the time they got to the 2020 season, the Jazz, they're ready to cut ties with him. Uh, all of that splashes of promise, they're just kind of, you can only buy into that for so long, especially in an organization at that time, 2020, when they're going, we need to build around Mitchell, we need to build around Gobert. I don't really understand how Exum fits into that specific curve. So we're going to trade him. Uh, and this is an interesting examination because when you look at how teams exchange players, Uh, Many times another organization will hone in on what you have on your roster and believe that patience on our end and a change of scenery will unlock the best version of that player that you have shown patience to for years and years and years because we see those splashes of promise and we think put them in a different situation. We give them a little patience and and that will turn Dante Exum into the best version of the player that, that he can be. So Cleveland does that and you have a very interesting trade where two organizations exchange players that had flashes but hadn't necessarily pieced everything together. The Jazz trade Exum and two second-round picks to the Cavaliers in the 2020 season for Jordan Clarkson, which for Cleveland's side, now we know, no, that's a a whiff, unfortunately. And for the Jazz, that idea that, all right, let's grab that player who has showed flashes and let's put him in a better situation and show him the patience that he needs in order to grow and learn as a player. That's been a home run for them. He's been sixth man of the year last year, uh, one of the best bench scorers in the league. And it's also just an interesting examination of 
patience and urgency, always trying to find the balance. Now, what I think is interesting about this constant uh, war within an organization or within a fan base is there's really never a right or wrong answer. I flip-flopped myself on Exum a hundred times on whether or not the Jazz should keep him, trade him when his value is high, all this kind of stuff. Uh, And it's only really in retrospect that it's pretty easy to identify uh, you hung on a little too long or you were vastly rewarded for your patience. I want to shift gears into the sport of the NFL because a few weeks ago I recorded an entire show about Josh Allen, the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills, and talked about how those two together have kind of represented the perfect marriage so far of talent, of organization, and of patience, and how when those things combine together, you're going to get something pretty special because Josh Allen comes into the league in 2018. He's super, super, super raw coming out of Wyoming. Um, Buffalo understands that, and they say, we are ready and willing to let you grow. We are here to be patient in a league that is topsy-turvy, and it's all about urgency, but we understand there is a very specific time and place to utilize patience as a weapon. And so over the course of the next three years, they place a lot of offensive talent around him. They install an offensive coordinator, Brian Dayball, who is awesome, one of the best play callers in the league. And they allow those two, Allen and Dayball, to establish that continuity that offenses need and crave. And now they're reaping the fruits of their labors. Last season, they make the AFC title game. Allen, he's second behind Rodgers for MVP of the league. It's a great example of how even in a sport that is all about urgency, uh, when you utilize patience in in the correct way or at the right time, it can just be transformational for your organization. Now, within the same sport uh, and within the same position, quarterback, there's a great cautionary tale of letting a player go at the wrong time. Uh, Ryan Tannehill, quarterback of the Tennessee Titans in present day, who was drafted by the Miami Dolphins back in 2012. Eighth overall, top 10 pick. Now, Tannehill's case is, it's different from other first round and top 10 quarterbacks because usually there is a balance between patience and urgency, but it's catered more towards that urgency side. Uh, With Tannehill, he was a converted wide receiver coming out of Texas A&M. And so you have to show a player like that patience. It's unrealistic to think that yeah, just come in and you'll be able to play quarterback in the NFL immediately from day one and you'll be awesome and our team will be good. It's just not realistic to expect that. And the Dolphins knew that. They go, uh, trying to project this growth curve, it's near impossible, but we trust in the talent. Let's give them room to grow. Let's show patience and let's see what happens. Now, over the course of years and years, Miami has limited success as a team. Um, the quarterback usually takes the brunt of that when it comes to perception which I never think is fair. But in this case, Tannehill, he's the quarterback for the Dolphins. He's backed by Adam Gase, possibly the worst football coach that I've watched in the last decade. Um, And in 2018, the Tennessee Titans, they swoop in. They say, all right, we'll trade a fourth round and a seventh round pick to you, the Miami Dolphins. And in return, we get Ryan Tannehill and a sixth round pick. Uh, And I remember when this trade came across and it never registered in my brain as something that would be super notable. Just when, yeah, they're taking a flyer on a guy that he hasn't been bad, but he's just, he showed flashes. He's been what Dante Exum was to the Jazz, essentially. There have been flashes, 
but a lot of just, I don't know if this will ever truly click for this player. And in the NFL, from 2012 to 2018, that is a world of time. So at that point, you're just going, eh, maybe Tannehill is what he is, you know. And we didn't think about his situation as much in Miami and how detrimental that could have possibly been to a player that, yeah, was looking to grow and needed that patience, but also just what he could do in a different setting with better weapons and smarter people around him calling plays. So the last two years, Ryan Tannehill, he becomes one of the 12 best quarterbacks in football, which is literally the most valuable commodity in the NFL. And the Titans, they acquire him for pennies on the dollar. They trade a fourth and a seventh rounder for him and a sixth rounder. (laughs) An incredible trade when you think of the value that was returned to the Tennessee Titans. On the Miami side, you go, that's, it's just not a good assessment for you when it comes to Tannehill's ceiling. And also, when it comes to you as an organization, for identifying what we should be putting around Tannehill in order to have him reach that ceiling. There's no way a team would ever trade a quarterback with a ceiling of one of the best 12 quarterbacks in football for pennies on the dollar. Never, ever, ever. That's a misevaluation of talent. And also, it's it's uh, error on the organizational building side because if you had created a better situation, you might have seen more glimmers of what Tannehill could turn into and realized we got something and we're not going to trade him for a fourth and a seventh rounder. It's a very, very tough equation in defense of every organization, including the Dolphins, that they're always trying to figure out, you know, is patient is patience going to cure what ails us? Or have we misevaluated our player or our players? That's another juggling act, if you will. Um, trying to decide... Is it time to cut ties with this player because our evaluation was incorrect? Something that eventually the Jazz got to the point of, our evaluation of this talent of Dante Exum was incorrect. It's time to leave. Or do we just need to show patience and this will be rewarded? Something that if the Dolphins had done, maybe they'd be in a different situation in present day when it comes to them repeating this over and over because now they've drafted Tua. He's going into his second year. They're feeling that crunch of, urgency more than patience because they have a great roster. They have a good coaching staff with Brian Flores. And they're saying, if two is good, we can be a good football team right now this year. But we don't know if he is going to be. He struggled last year. He kept getting benched for Ryan Fitzpatrick. He showed flashes in this preseason. Will that translate to the regular season? I don't know. Within the quarterback position, I always talk about the 2018 draft class, uh, which is Really, really interesting to examine every year for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, Today, patience, urgency, whether or not misevaluation of talent factors into either one of those two things. You look at the quarterbacks, Baker Mayfield, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen. Those first three, Baker, Josh, Lamar. You're seeing the process of have patience with these people and you will reap the benefits. All three organizations are feeling that right now going into the season. The Browns, a lot of people think they can win a Super Bowl. The Bills, same thing. The Ravens, the same thing. Sam Darnold, he's in the exact middle of the patience versus urgency because Carolina, they come and pluck him from the Jets and they go, maybe a change of scenery is going to do him wonders. Uh, There was enough talent there to make him the third overall pick in that draft And the Jets, they've botched everything for all of time. They never put anything around him. And Adam Gase, the dude from Miami, he was somehow also involved in Sam Darnold. Maybe there's a Ryan Tannehill story built into him. And that 
kind of redemption arc. And maybe he can grow into a really good quarterback simply by putting him in a different situation and giving him a little bit of patience. Rosen, he's the last one. And he's interesting for the Arizona Cardinals because they were able to identify really quickly that we misevaluated this talent. And to their credit, they were able to acknowledge that and cut ties quickly and not go into sunk cost mode and just say, no, 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 this is our quarterback. We're going to write out his rookie contract. He's going to start. We're going to give him every opportunity. They draft him in the first round of 2018. He has a season. By the end of that, the Cardinals are still terrible. They're drafting one overall. Kyler Murray's sitting there on the board. And the Cardinals say, all right, we already have a quarterback that we drafted last year in the first round, but we think we made a huge mistake. Cue Joe Bluth from Arrested Development. And so we're going to draft Kyler Murray. That's our quarterback moving forward. And it looks like in that specific instance, they made the correct choice because Josh Rosen seems like he's going to be out of the league well before he becomes a meaningful starter. And Kyler looks like he's one of the up-and-comers amongst this young, promising group of quarterbacks. Um, Staying within the sport of football, and I kind of want to shift this out to the fan perspective. Uh, Saturday is week zero. College football begins. Those of you who watch this show know I'm a very big Nebraska fan, which means Saturday's a very big day for me because Nebraska goes to Illinois to open the college football season. And there are two coaches in that game that are at very different stages of how much patience a fan base is willing to give and the perception from the fan base of what that coach needs to show right now at this specific moment. On the Illinois side, Brett Bielema, he's taking over there. Um, it's year one. He's ready to bring his version of burly man ball back to the Big Ten. He used to coach at Wisconsin, had a lot, a lot of success there. He's coming back to Illinois, and I think there's a lot of hope within that fan base that because he understands the Big Ten, because he's had success within that conference, that he can do some things that maybe Illinois hasn't been able to do for a very long time. On the other side, my side, the fan side, Scott Frost, Nebraska. Uh, you have the sand through the hourglass, time is running out scenario, which is unbelievable how much has changed from a perception standpoint as he enters year four of coaching Nebraska. Uh, if you remember when he came there, he's the conquering hero out of UCF, coming off an undefeated season, beating Auburn in the Peach Bowl. Uh, he's ready to resurrect Nebraska from the dead. He's the native son. He understands what it takes to win there. Quarterback of the 97 national title team, all that stuff. Everybody, everybody, including myself, just promising infinite patience. We understand this team has to be torn down to nothing and then built back up. And yet after three seasons, here we are. Where I personally have not run out of patience, but it's starting to dawn on me that mm, this is getting really, really, really depressing because I'm running out of hope, which is an entirely different thing. But for Nebraska specifically, the idea was when Frost came in, if he can't resurrect this program, who can? What coach is going to be out there that will check all of these boxes? Hottest coaching candidate on the market, native son, understands the area and what it took to win there in the past and maybe how that will translate into present day. Also comes with knowledge of present day college football and all of the schemes and recruiting techniques and actual on-field schematics 
that lead to winning, whether that was with Oregon or with UCF. It seemed like the perfect blend of everything you could ever ask for in trying to resurrect Nebraska from the dead. And yet Nebraska has been losing program still under Frost. They're 12 and 20 through 32 games of him. And the question that a lot of people within the fan base are asking themselves is, how much patience are we willing to extend? And second, if he is not the coach to make Nebraska relevant, then who is? Again, the world is more about urgency than ever. And in the past, especially within the world of college football, uh, patience was extended in a way that it is not in present day. That comes specifically to coaches and how so many successful coaches of the past, they had slow starts to their career in a way that if you translate or took it into present day, you would say you've probably been fired after five years or eight years or something. Even Tom Osborne at Nebraska, who is one of the most successful coaches of all time at a program that demanded national titles, he didn't win any for over two decades before finishing with three in his last four years. In present day, I think that might not play out in that way. Bobby Bowden, he has a slow start to his career at Florida State before getting the ball rolling and turning that into one of the very best programs of the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. It's just kind of a different world that we live in. And now, how do you find a balance between patience and urgency in a world that just it grows more urgent by the day? I'll end with the most relevant example of patience that uh, that comes from yesterday that I started the show with, Tony Finau winning the Northern Trust. And it's a perfect capper to yesterday's show and today's and the blend of all of these things that I've been talking about. This process of improvement, this self-assessment, this understanding the truth about yourself in order to grow. And then once you've established both of those things and have the skills in place, how belief factors into that and how it becomes mainly about that. And then once you have all of that and you're still just butting your head against the wall and the wall and the wall and the wall and and you're not breaking through, how much patience comes into play there? Uh, Because Finau has been one of the most talented players on tour the last few years. And that has worked against him the more that he has not won. Because everybody demands that a golfer wins, blah, 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 blah. All the stuff that I hate. Uh... He hadn't, he hadn't won since the 2016 Puerto Rican Open, which was an opposite field event. Limited field, just not very good golfers in the field relative to a normal professional event. That was the only win that he had. And up until yesterday, near miss after near miss. 40 different top 10s and eight different tournaments he's a runner-up in over the span from 2016 to yesterday. So you see a very, very, very successful golfer. Which, if you're thinking about the improvement side of things, he has everything in place. The dude has assessed and trusted and believed. And he's understood that in the world of golf, you just put yourself in position over and over and over. And sooner or later, you will break through. That's just how it works. Sometimes it takes a really long time. Ask Phil Mickelson. Ask Hideki Matsuyama, who he's butting his head against that ceiling for a decade before breaking through and winning the Masters uh, this most recent go-round. So Finau establishes this reputation amongst the naysayer crowd of he doesn't have what it takes to win, which just completely ignores this concept that, yeah, if you are always floating around the top, it means you are amongst the very best and you have to win sooner rather than later. 
Sometimes that doesn't happen because golf can be fickle and sports can be fickle, but you just have to trust in this process. You have to have patience in this process. Sports and golf especially are about this idea about putting yourself in position to win and understanding that most times you will not. In golf, it's a huge field. They're all the very best players in the world and you are one against 100. Most times you will not win, even if you are the most talented player or amongst the most talented players. Um, Golf is a sport that is so clearly defined by patience. It's kind of unsettling. I've understood that within my own golf career and I understand that when I watch an arc like a Tony Finau or a Matsuyama or a Phil Mickelson. It's so many years with minimal payoff when it comes to that climbing the mountaintop idea from yesterday. But then when it happens, it's just, it's really cool to watch. If you followed the career of Tony Finau, you've seen all these near misses, near miss after near miss after near miss. I know I've bet on the vast majority of them. The most recent one, as far as the near misses, it's Tony at Riviera going against Max Homa in a playoff. Uh, Homa on the first playoff hole. It's a drivable par four. He bashes it behind a tree. It looks like there's no way he's going to do anything. Finau's in pole position. He's got a relatively straightforward up and down to win the tournament. Homa hits an amazing shot, saves par. Finau makes par from a spot that everybody thinks he's going to make birdie. They go on to a par three. Finau splashes it in the bunker. Homa hits the green. Finau doesn't get up and down for par. Homa's the champion. I'm sitting there going, when is it going to happen for this guy? I mean, the amount of things that are going into this, it's just insane. It's not because he's not clutch. He's done a million clutch things. Even at that Riviera tournament on the 18th hole, he's got to make this nasty up and down on 18 to get himself into the playoffs, which he does. It's never as clear cut as we want it to be. This guy choked. This guy didn't. And so yesterday, um, we see all of this stuff come to a head. Uh, the trust, the patience, the belief, all that stuff. Because Finau comes storming back into the tournament on the back nine. He's five down on that side to force a playoff. He's hitting just phenomenal golf shots, flagging a six iron on the 13th par five, hitting it in for eagle, drilling a 30-footer the next hole on a par three to tie Rom for the lead. He goes into that playoff against Cam Smith, who self-destructs on the first playoff hole on 18. Bashes one 9 million yards right, out of bounds. Retees, hits it in the bunker, has to lay up. Tony doesn't even have to do anything. He's just walking into a victory, which is always interesting in the context of the whether or not you are clutch or whether you aren't. Because Fina, who has been clutched 3 million times in his career, but has lost a lot because that's just how the way of the world is. Yesterday, like the biggest moment when it comes to him actually winning, you could look at it one of two ways. It could be... That iron shot on 13, it could be the putt on 14, it could be the sweet up and down on 18 he had to make out of the bunker to force a playoff on 18. Or it could just be as simple as the thing that I couldn't control was Cam Smith, who's been awesome all week, who shot a 60 earlier, who had a putt for 59 that day. He just picked the wrong time to hit his worst tee ball of the tournament. And that's now why I'm a winner. After the tournament, Tony Finau, he gives this quote. I worked my tail off to put myself in this position again. I continue to believe in myself. That's the bottom line. You see that quote, and I think it's the perfect bow on yesterday's episode 
and two days. It's the perfect circle um, reflected in Tony Finau's golf career. It's improvement through that process I spoke about yesterday. Self-assessment, understanding what you need to improve on, where you're at, being truthful with yourself and how those two things work together. Once you've established your skills, as Tony obviously had for years and years and years, having belief that I can win. And even if I keep tripping and falling over and over and over, have belief, have belief, have belief. I have the skills. I'm one of the most talented players. I have 40 top 10s. I have eight runner-ups. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. And then the perfect circle, it's yesterday. Um, It's the culmination of years and years of work. It's the culmination of belief, as he says yesterday. And all that comes together. And that's how you have patience rewarded.